0: Suffering for faith, most of the time that's really not something we want to hear. Um, Some people would say, "I, I really don't want to hear about it because I'm living it. So we don't need to come to church and talk about it. And while that might be true with many people in today's society, there are a lot of people that with the world as it is, a lot of people are suffering. And that's not just Christians, but Christians and non-Christians alike. A lot of people are suffering right now. The problem that many Christians that are are facing when it comes to suffering is that for the last several years, the so-called prosperity movement in many churches that espouse that lie of a doctrine, people have been told that if you give me your money, God will make you rich. And that's backed up with the person that's making the statement saying, look at what I've got. I've got several mansions and luxury cars, a private jet, and all the other things. And it's it's the problem is not that God can't do those things, and it's not that God doesn't do those things. The problem with many people is the motivation for doing it. For the one asking, too many times they're presenting the need to give money in order to further the work of God. When in reality, it's simply being used to further enhance their own personal financial situation. Simply, it's greed. For many of the givers, and hold on a second here before you pick up a rock to throw at me. For many of the givers, it's the exact same motivation. It's greed. And this is what I say, what I mean when I say that. I want to be rich, so I'll give money to this preacher so that I can have all the things he has. He has. After all, that seems to be the sign that you're pleasing God if you have all the stuff. And that is the society that many Christians have lived in. It's the atmosphere that many have lived in. And sadly, it's the type of thing that's been taught at so many churches over the last 10 years or so. And then we face a time of difficulty. And all these people have been told, well, if I did this and I did this then I would be a multi-bazillionaire too. And then they find themselves not being there. And what does that do? That's exactly right. And both the the person asking for the wrong reason and the person that's giving for the wrong reason are unscriptural. God has not called men to preach the gospel as a means to become wealthy. In fact, the, the Bible specifically states that. And by the same token, God has not called us to give to those people so that we can become rich. If we give, we give because it's in our heart to give. We don't give to receive. We give knowing that God is faithful and God will not forsake us. As David said, I've never seen the, the, his, the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. But he never said that because I sent $500 to such and such network that I'll never have another problem paying my bills. That's not what the Bible says. And what it has done is created a lot of shallow Christians. Shallow in the fact that spirituality is often measured solely on the blessings. And that causes many to look at someone that might be struggling financially and attempt to judge their spirituality simply by that. Because you put all of these things together, and if it says that if you send me money, then God's going to bless you and make you rich, and you'll have all these things like I do, and then all of a sudden this person suffers a financial setback, and people look at that person and say, well, they must be doing something really wrong. And that is the atmosphere that's been created in many churches, and people that don't even go to church that watch way too much TV that have seen that, And it's been created as a a gauge of spirituality. Here's the truth. God never promised us that we would never have problems. And if you were told that when you got saved, that all your problems would go away, then someone has lied to you. Now before you say, well, I could have stayed home and, and heard negative stuff on the TV. Yes, you could. But we're going to go somewhere with this that won't ultimately end up negative. So stay with me. The Bible is provided to us as a guideline. It's not just a rule book, as many would have you believe. And because it's a guideline, we are given example after example throughout the Bible of godly men and godly women that suffered difficult times. And I don't say that to take away from what God can and what God does do. I said that to to let us be aware that even Christians will, from time to time, suffer setbacks and hardships. Everybody does. There's a quote. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said this, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for our home. In this life, suffering will always be with us. It turns our eyes toward our real home. When I read that yesterday, I I thought, you know what? That is exactly what it is. What What we're saying is that as we go through this life, there will be some nice stops along the way. But we don't want to confuse that with this being our home. Now, before we go any further, there are some that, maybe not here today, but that are listening to this on on the internet or or wherever you might be listening, that, that would say, you seem to have a real problem with these prosperity doctrine peddlers. And I would answer, yes, I do. I believe that one of the worst things that it has done is to make many believers take their eyes off God and their hope of heaven and place their eyes on men and things of this earth. I believe it has caused many people who face difficult times in their lives to say, since I'm going through these things, God must not love me. Or I must have done something horribly wrong for these things to happen to me because this isn't the way that Pastor Randy or Pastor Paula said it would be. Let me make it clear. There is nothing wrong with having possessions. There is nothing wrong with it. It's only when we allow them to become the focus of our life that they become wrong. Having things is not wrong. Having really nice things is not wrong. It's when they become what we live for. And when we start focusing on the things of this earth instead of on the things that are ahead of us, and we start thinking that these comfortable little things and these little ends that God has let us stop at along our journey of life is home. Because it's not. If you remember all the way back to Abraham's time, he faced this same dilemma because here he was, he was promised this land, and they get in there, and in the entire time of Abraham, he never owned a home in Canaan. He lived as a nomad. They lived in tents. They moved around from place to place. And Abraham didn't have a problem with it because it said that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He wasn't looking for the answer to all his problems here on this earth. And what has happened to so many people that have fallen into this, this, this lie is that God has wants to turn this into a heaven on earth, and that's not the case necessarily. And if we look around at the financial situation of our country right now, we can see that that's really not going to be the case, maybe for a while. You say it oh, sounds awfully negative. Job was a man of great wealth. How do I know that? Job chapter one. Verses 2 and 3 says this. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. I'm guessing he was pretty well off. So Job was doing really good. Now, before that statement there of all the things he had, Look what the Bible said about him in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He was a godly man, and he was very, very wealthy. In fact, he was the most wealthy person. He was the the Bill Gates of Uz. So Job was a good and godly man, and yet... We read the book of Job and we see the things he went through. He suffered to the point of losing everything that he had. And like many people would judge today, his friends and his wife told him, you must have really done something wrong. Look how God is punishing you. Isn't it amazing that that attitude is carried over all the way to today? Today. that wasn't the case the bible says that he was blameless and upright he feared god and shunned evil and yet those things happened you go well that's not a very happy story well that's not the end of the story if you go all the way to the end of the book of job chapter 42 verses 12 and 13 it said the lord blessed the latter part of job's life more than the first he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oak of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Yes, he was blessed in the end. But it was because of his faithfulness to God, through his difficulties, and because of God's faithfulness to him all the way to the end, it was not because he sent $100 to Benny Hinn or whoever the televangelist of the day was. It was because he was faithful to God. Now, I'm not taking away from from us coming to to church and giving our tithes. I believe that that's that's in the Bible. I can back that up with the Bible. I can back up giving our offering with the Bible. But what you cannot back up is this promise of, I give you a dollar amount to give me, and God will promise you back a certain dollar amount. It is not... A money exchange. And if it sounds like that I, I have a tremendous amount of, not necessarily dislike, but I find it just totally abhorrable and abominable, that people will stand in the name of God and do some of the things that they do in today's society. Not for the fact that they're taking money from people, but the fact of what it does to people's minds of what God really is. We're continuing our study today of John the Baptist, and you're probably wondering, well, what did all that have to do with John the Baptist? I'm getting there. From the beginning... John knew that he was destined for something special. Before his birth, an angel told his parents that many would come to know the Lord because of him. It was apparent even to the people of John's hometown that the Spirit of God rested on him. Look what Luke wrote in, in Luke one sixty six. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Even the neighbors knew that John was blessed to become something tremendous in the kingdom of God. And as we saw last week as an adult, John wandered around in the wilderness near the Jordan River and he prophesied about the promised Messiah or Jesus and, and he prepared people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And Jews from miles around came through across the desert and down to the Jordan River and listened to him preach about repentance and the need for obedience to God. And many of them were baptized as a result of the repentance. No one in all of Israel had a higher calling or deserved more respect. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. However, and there's that word that generally signifies that things are fixing to change. However, in the process of standing up for what was right, John had managed to make a lot of people, a lot of the ruling authorities mad, especially the religious ones. So this week we find John in prison. But I thought you said he was a good guy. I thought you said he was doing the work of the Lord. I thought you said that no one deserved more respect or had a higher calling than John. That's exactly right. Yes, I did. But he's still in prison, so stay with me. As his imprisonment dragged on, this is where the opening and where we're going to get to tying John into that. As John's imprisonment dragged on, most likely he became lonely, discouraged, and possibly even apprehensive about his future and his ministry. He probably wondered some things like, maybe I've missed the call of God in my life. Or even, what if my cousin Jesus really isn't the Messiah? After all, I am in prison. A little quick history lesson. Remember, John was six months older than Jesus, and John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were cousins, so that makes John and Jesus some kind of cousin. I'm not sure how that works. Second cousin, twice removed. I never did understand all that. But instead of giving in to all of these feelings, here's what John did. Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. When John heard in prison, here's John in prison, he hears what Christ is doing, he sent his disciples, now pay attention to this, to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Exactly right. Because if you really are the Messiah, then why am I in prison? And if I really was following the call of God on my life, then why am I in prison? So even John, this great preacher of repentance in his most difficult situation, started to question some of his beliefs. But he he questioned it based solely on his current circumstances. So he sent some of his disciples to find out the truth. They go to Jesus and and just point blank ask him, John wants to know something. Sure, what does he want to know? He wants to know if you're really the Messiah, which should we start looking for someone else? Here's what Jesus told him to go back and tell John. Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus sent John's disciples back with a very simple instruction. John. Remember the miracles and consider what I've preached. And these things alone are enough and adequate proof of who Jesus was. In other words, yes, I'm the Messiah. And things are going exactly the way that they're supposed to go. And John, by the way, continue to trust in what you know is true. Continue to trust in the calling that's on your life. And don't give up. And don't judge the power of God by the circumstances that you're in. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And there was a reason for this. What did, this is talking to the people. He said, what did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he is least in the kingdom of heaven, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now let's break that down just a second here. Just in case there were people in the crowd that may have wondered why Jesus didn't criticize John for his doubts, Jesus reminded them of their own view of John and why they came to hear him in the first place. And Jesus told them, you didn't travel long distances to listen to a person that was swayed by whatever came along. That's my translation of it. Actually, what Jesus said is, what did you go to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Would you come all this way, just to see some wimpy little guy out here? No. He said, you didn't travel long distance to listen to a person that was easily swayed by authorities. You also didn't come out here to see someone whose primary concern was impressing others by how he dressed. Of course not. Those people were found in the king's court. The person that you came to listen to is dressed in this rough, uncomfortable, itchy camel hair outfit. No. No. That's not who you came to see. You came to see the one that the prophet Malachi said would prepare the way for me. What Jesus spoke in verse 10 was a a quote from the book of Malachi. You can write that down and look at it later. It's Malachi 3 and 1. Instead of criticizing John, Jesus pointed out John's high standing with God. Look what he said in verse 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So before you start putting John down, you heard it from me. He's the greatest one ever came along. Then Jesus kind of throws him a curveball. He says, even though there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Huh? Huh? It's exactly right. And there are several implications of this this statement. Jesus was saying that John was the greatest of the prophets. What the Old Testament prophets simply spoke about and wrote about, John actually did. They told the world that the Messiah was coming. John actually introduced him to the world. However, that didn't make him the greatest person in the kingdom of God. Stay with me just for a second. Every believer can and should point to Jesus as the Messiah through his or her discipleship. And also know even more than John about the life-giving gospel. Why? Because those that were to come after John, us, would be part of a new covenant. A covenant through, the, through Christ who lived and died. John didn't experience that. Which in turn would make those, us, Greater than John was. Because we have a covenant with Jesus Christ through the blood of Christ that our sins are forgiven and we have received power when we receive the Spirit into our life. So John was the greatest of all the prophets, but the very least that was to come under this new covenant was greater than John. It could also imply that As incredible as John's ministry was, since he still suffered for Christ, if others, we again, were to have even a greater role in Christ, in God's work, is it possible that we might have to suffer as well? Now, before you get up and leave, and walking out the door and muttering under your breath, well, if this is what Christianity is about, then I don't want to be a Christian. Let me say this. Being a Christian is not a guarantee of hardship. No more than it's a guarantee that you won't have any hardship. But it is a reality that Christians from time to time might suffer through hardship in spite of the fact that they are followers of Christ. Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, "This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him." Now, as you read that, you stop and go, "Hmm. I guess that means that John the Baptist is dead. And when did that happen?" In the next few verses of Matthew, Matthew explains why Herod would think that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's kind of like a movie where at the beginning of the movie they open up with these several scenes of a movie and then all of a sudden you see this thing comes up and it says three weeks earlier. And then it goes back and it explains all of the events that led up to where the movie started. And that's exactly what this scripture is. It's kind of like we open the the, the passage of scripture with, John is dead. Well, when did that happen? Now let's go back and tell when it happened. So in the following verses, that's what we're going to see. Here's how it happened, and this is what led up to it. John, uh, Matthew 14, verses 3 through 11. This is a great story. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed because of his oaths, and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Herod the Tetrarch was actually named, his name was actually Herod Antipas. He was one of the three sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that governed all of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great was a great guy. He, um, he was afraid that Je- he heard that Jesus was born, and he was afraid that Jesus would come up and take over his kingdom. And since he knew that Jesus was a toddler and not knowing exactly who he was or where he was, he just simply ordered that all male babies under two years old be killed. Simple plan. I'm not sure exactly which baby he is, but I know he's somewhere under that two years old, so let's just kill all the male babies under two. Really a nice guy. So this is the son of him that Matthew is writing about, and this guy, Herod, Herod Antipas, seems to be a great guy too. It seems that Herod had fallen in love fallen in love with his brother Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. And the problem was Herod was already married to someone else, but he wasn't going to let morality get in the way of his passion. So he divorced his wife and married Herodias, his brother's wife. And John was very outspoken about this and publicly rebuked Herod about this. But because it, And he, he rebuked him because it was against the law to marry your brother's wife if your brother was still alive. And Herod responded by throwing John the Baptist in prison. That's where we found him back in chapter 11, in prison, wondering why why he was in prison. Because of John's popularity, Herod was afraid to kill him. Because the people thought he was a prophet, and Herod was like, well, I don't want to kill him, I'll just put him in prison. i will just shut him up. His lovely wife, Herodias, however, did not share Herod's concern or his high moral standards. So she was looking for a reason and a way to kill John. John was making her look bad. Who cares if she really was bad? She just didn't want it pointed out to everybody around. But the opportunity came on Herod's birthday. Herod and his guests were entertained that night by the dancing of Salome, who happened to be Herod's daughter. I'm guessing that Salome was not doing ballroom dancing. <laughs> and I say that because most of the time these celebrations in that day were More of an orgy than a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. So Salome sounds like quite a wonderful person, much like her dad. After she finishes dancing, and it must have been quite a dance, in front of all his guests, Herod tells her that I will give you anything. Had to be quite a dance. Absolutely. How about that? Here we are in front of all the people, and everybody's probably just stumbling down drunk. And, yeah, I'll give you anything you want. Just that was a great dance. You just name it, and I'll give you whatever you want. So prompted by Herodias, of all the things she could have asked for, she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Oh, boy. And I'm sure Herod is going, what was I thinking, honey, are you sure you wouldn't rather have a new car? <laughs> Daddy's going to be in big trouble if he does this. No, I want his head cut off. Rather than losing face in front of all his drunk guests, Herod says, okay, go cut John the Baptist's head off. And when you're done, give it to Salome, and she'll take it to her mom. Quite a family. And this is how the life of John the Baptist came to an end. John the Baptist, whose only mistake was doing what God had called him to do. So what does that mean to us today? Someone say, well, I guess I'm not going to let anybody know I'm a Christian. Then I won't have to suffer, right? It's not the way it works. But there are a few things that we need to remember. One of those things is that suffering will often come even when we're doing what God wants us to do. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do what God calls us to do. Rather, we should know that God is there even in our suffering. Number two. Physical and emotional suffering are experiences shared by both Christians and non-Christians. So if you say, well, I just won't be a Christian, that way I won't have problems, that won't help. No one is immune from suffering. In fact, Matthew 5 and 45, it says something along the lines that that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you're a Christian or if you're a non-Christian and you walk outside and it starts raining, you're both going to get wet. There you go. No one is immune from suffering. And be assured that if we are suffering, you are not the only person in the world that is. Number three. Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit to help them. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, it is with us in the bleakest times of our lives. Remember what John Jesus told John's disciples to go back and tell John. He said, tell him you've seen the miracles performed and you've seen suffering healed. So John, take heart in that. Number four, suffering is only temporary. For believers. And this is probably the greatest one that you can hold on to. In first Peter chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. Here's what he wrote. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Hold that right there. Hold it right there. Just because you're suffering, don't act like it's it's something strange. Okay but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Know that this is only for a little while. Know that, that yes, suffering will come, but know that in the end His glory will be revealed. Don't be surprised when suffering comes into your life. Just know that it's a a spiritual refining process. And glory is just around the corner. The Apostle John, not the same man as John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, late in his life, he was imprisoned, he was exiled, he was put out on a an island that was basically just a big rock called Patmos. And through all of those things, he wrote of a time when all suffering would be erased. In Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, John wrote, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In case you were wondering... You can write this down in your little book of things that are going to happen. Those things will happen. Believe it. The day is coming. What David wrote in Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5 is still true for us today. He said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now the key there is that he's saying, yes, there could be weeping. Yes, there could be sorrow. Yes, there could be suffering. But for children of God, it doesn't end with suffering and sorrow and weeping. That joy comes in the morning. Number five, God allows trials in believers' lives to mature our faith. Although we would never choose the experience of physical or emotional pain, We as Christians can and should understand and believe that out of difficulty a greater good can emerge. The Christian who experiences suffering yet remains victorious can be a shining example of the power of God. Now some people might listen to this today and say, well you can only say that because everything is going so great in your life. I'll talk to you after Sunday school. But remember this. God is faithful. God loves you. And you are his child. I will close with this. Horatio Spafford was born... On October 20th, 1828, in North Troy, New York, he was a successful lawyer in Chicago who maintained a a very keen interest in Christian activities. In fact, he was very involved with with, um, D.L. Moody, Iris Sankey, and a lot of the revivals that were going on all over the world. He was deeply spiritual and devoted to the scripture. In spite of his faith, Mr. Spafford suffered several traumatic events in his life. The first was the death of his only son in 1871. That was followed by the the Great Chicago Fire, which ruined him financially because he had invested hugely in real estate just a few months before along the shore of Lake Michigan. So after all of those things that happened, two years later he made plans to travel to Europe with his family. He was delayed on business, so he sent his family ahead. While crossing the Atlantic, the ship sank rapidly after it was struck by another ship, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. He'd already lost his son. He lost all his finances in the Great Fire of Chicago. His wife, Anna, survived. And upon arriving with the other survivors in Cardiff, Wales, she sent him a telegram that simply said, Saved alone. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Spafford boarded a ship to go to meet with his grieving wife. As the ship that he was on passed near to where his four daughters had died, he was inspired to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet. Though trial should come. Let this blessed assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate. And has shed his own blood. For my soul. Yes, we might face hard times. And I don't say that to be negative, as negative as it sounds. I believe that as a country, due to, not to any one in particular's fault, but for a lot of reasons, that we find ourselves where we are today. And I also believe that it could get worse before it gets better. And I don't say that to be negative. I say that to be honest with you and to be factual, that sometimes things don't go exactly like we planned. The Bible is full of examples. We've covered several of them today. Person after person that lived for God and did all the right things, and yet they suffered tremendously. But here's what I will tell you. That in Christ, regardless of the circumstances, we have an assurance assurance that he is always with us. And that we can say, just as Horatio Spafford wrote, it is well with my soul. God bless you.